0: there and mention this closes out the book of job i wrote a fitting close uh, some commentators note that it seems anticlimactic that the the big crescendo of what god describes right before to job and job's repentance would make the better conclusion and and obviously people have critiques about everything the reality is this is the perfect close uh, to the book of job this is what the holy spirit wanted us to know and it does wrap up neatly What takes place through the book of Job, it also wraps up and corrects yet again uh, some of the errors that were seen in the advice that took place through the book of Job. And so it kind of reminds us and deals with what takes place uh, throughout the book. And so I wrote a fitting close. James 5.11 says this, "...behold, we count them happy which endure." You've heard of the patience or steadfastness of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is pitiful and of tender mercy. And what's interesting is that's what the New Testament has to say about Job. James writes about that, and he says, "Job has been patient, He has been steadfast, he has been steady, which God is going to say, Job spoke right about me." And then on top of that, it says that God is full of mercy that God is gracious. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we come to the close of Job. Job has cried to see and hear from God, to get a glimpse of him, to understand and be vindicated. And though he struggled, we recognize that. God addressed that struggle. He has kept his hope fixed on God. He's wanted to connect with God. Job himself stated confidently, this is in 1926 to 27, A portion of each of those verses, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold. And as Robert Fial notes, God by appearing now has vindicated Job's integrity and demonstrated that his purposes for Job are good and loving. Job had seen the universe with God as his guide and that had been a revelation not only of creation, but of the creator. And we talked last week about that, right? He, he gave Job this picture of what evil looks like. He described Satan, but he also made sure he understood that Satan was subservient to God, that he couldn't rival God at all. And so with a clear picture of that awesome creator, we remember Job fell down in repentance and worship, repenting of his presumptuous attitude and words, not repenting of that Supposed hidden sin or sins that the friends had accused him of. As Job stated, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now mine eye seeth thee. What he had longed for, I want to see God, he says to God in repentance, I have seen you. And that sight changed Job's posture, it changed his attitude, and we again. Encounter the man described by God himself as blameless, the man who, in the first days of his crushing grief and pain, worshiped, it says in Job chapter 1, and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we come to the epilogue of the story. In a nutshell, it describes the bountiful blessing of God, or the blessings of God. It is the Lord's free gifts given to Job at the close of the story yet tucked strategically in God's amazing kindness and care, we encounter some crucial truths. And we're going to begin with this first one, the seriousness of an errant theology. Or in other words, it's bad to have bad theology, to summarize it in simpler words. Remember when we described Elihu's speeches, we recognized that he didn't speak about God incorrectly, God does not address him. God does not reprimand him. And as we walk through speeches, he was constantly pointing to God in a correct way. He didn't push Job to confess supposed sins to gain back God's blessing and reward. He didn't promote a prosperity gospel, but the first three friends did. And so here we come to this Closing remarks, and remember, God has just spoken to Job. Just showed him Leviathan and Behemoth. He's he's pictured death and Satan and explained what they do, what they look like. And we walked through Scripture. We saw Leviathan rear its ugly head or heads from all the way through the Old Testament into Revelation. And so now God speaks, and and don't miss sight of God's mercy here. He's reprimanding the three friends, but what a gracious God to actually speak directly to them and give them the chance to repent, which they do. And so verse 7 says, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him, I will accept. Lest I deal with you after your folly. And if you want to underline that word, that's the same word as Job used about his wife. You're talking like a foolish woman. That's the same exact word. And lest I deal with you after your foolishness, and that ye have not spoken of me, the thing which is right, like my servant Job. See, God finishes talking to Job, which resulted, as we know, in, in Job repenting and worshiping the Almighty. But God is not done with his instructions and turns his special attention towards the friends who have pushed a prosperity gospel. And you're going to hear me say that. It's a word I think we hear because I want you to connect to what it is. And, and here's the thing. They have tempted Job. Like Job's wife did to curse God in some sense, they've tempted Job to act in a way that would have denied God's faith in him by seeking God for what he, Job, could gain from God. In essence, this is that temptation or a second temptation to curse God. God makes clear that he has only wrath against folly. And I'm hoping as we close out Job that we won't miss the seriousness of an errant theology, that we will not be casual where God is rigid, where God is clear about what he wants. See, the friend's advice, if taken, would have moved Job from true worship to manipulative worship. It would have said, hey, confess some sins so that things will go right for you. Take care of this so that you can get what you want out of life. Manipulate worship for your gain. See, it is the prosperity theology of a works-based relationship, of a barter. If you'll just take care of this, Job, you'll be fine. God will give you back what you want. And the friend's advice, as we see from Scripture, was folly. Hartley explains it It was this. What is folly? What is this foolishness? It is the, the denial of God's goodness And redemptive activity in the affairs of mankind. What did Job's wife tell him to do? And Job said, You're acting in folly, You're, you're preaching foolishness. She said, Curse God and die. Deny God's goodness and his redemptive activity in the affairs of mankind. Walk, turn your back on this, neglect this. That was her push because the suffering was too much. The burden was too much. And and again, we don't need to pick on Job's wife. She was going through the same suffering minus the physical component. She had lost her children. She had lost her life. She had lost her wealth. And so at some point she says, forget about it. Deny that God is good. Deny that God redeems. And when the friend said, confess a sin so God gives you what you want, it's the same thing. Thing. If you remember, Job, throughout his speeches, and he struggled, and we talked about his struggle, but remember, he was seeking for that mediator, that advocate. He acknowledged with confident faith in 19 that he would see God. So there was always this idea of God's goodness that permeated. Though he attacked God's goodness and his justice and God reprimanded him for it, he still was seeking God. And remember how one of his friends made a point to deny the possibility that there would be a mediator for Job? That's not going to happen. That's not going to take place. What do we gather from this? God takes seriously our wrong theology. God is serious about theology. First, the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all, but instead a relationship lacking faith of self-centeredness and manipulation. And I know I'm constantly using that prosperity gospel title for this. I doubt that Job would have labeled it that way, wouldn't know the word prosperity gospel. But I say that because the people preaching it today are not just slightly off. They're not just a little away from what God wants. They are under God's wrath. God is clear. His wrath is kindled against them. Now, we know they're not without hope because we see the hope for the friends. But I want you to recognize something. We in our society, because we want to make good and make friends and to be connected, we oftentimes are more tolerant than we should be about bad theology. We're oftentimes more rigid about our traditions than we are about what God wants said and done about him. But when a gospel is promoted, that is the prosperity gospel, the manipulative worship to gain for self, God says, my wrath is kindled against that foolishness because it denies his goodness and it denies his redemptive activity. Second, what do we learn from this? God's truth is not open for any interpretation. To say to somebody, well, that's how I see the text, is not a good reasoning point. What did God intend for us to see? What was his point to be made? 2 Peter 1.20 states very clearly, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. See, that's what oftentimes bad theology begins with. It begins with us wandering into Scripture and finding something that fits What I want. How many people in our Christian society speak of the Jesus they know? You ever heard that? That's not the Jesus I know. This is the Jesus I know. The Jesus they make into their own image, manipulated to fit their own whims and sins. A Jesus they say that will not judge, but only loves and accepts humanity as they are. And I underline this do not miss the weight of errant theology. God is not pleased he is not okay with it, but makes clear that his wrath is against such twisted thinking. And I'm going to say it again, Christ is not interested in validating such lifeless faith. Because the reality is, God and his mercy doesn't validate that lifeless faith. Because it is not redemptive faith. It is a belief in in a being that will give you what you want. It is, I call the genie of the Bible. If I rub the Bible the right way, out pops God, and he has to grant me my three wishes. I repented, God, so give me my stuff. I would like billions of dollars. I would like a nice house. I would like a car. All right, go back in the Bible, and I'll rub the lamp when I need more things. Because that's what prosperity gospel is. That's what this relationless faith is. Now it's cloaked in what looks like a relationship, but it's not there. Now, in sharp contrast to his wrath against folly, we find in this story there is vindication through relationship. Job's rejection of a system, a faith formula, a mathematical equation, if I punch these numbers in, I get out this. If I drop a coin in this slot and hit this button, out comes the Coca-Cola of blessing from God. And so we need to put the coin in the machine and hit the button so we get what we want from God. You put in, you get out. This is how this works. Job has rejected that formula and he's persistently sought to know and speak with the living God. And what does that mean? He wanted to have a relationship. Job was burnt up about what he felt. He felt a distance from God. Satan had masqueraded as an angel of light. He had pretended to be God, right? That's what God was showing him. And so Job feels like his relationship with God is is severing. It's breaking. It wasn't, but Job felt that way. Why? Because Satan was deceiving him. As we talked about, Satan was messing with his mind. And so he is seeking God. He's saying, I want this relationship. How does how does God talk about Job as he reprimands a friend? Job is called my servant four times in verses seven and eight. This is a title that suggests, as one writer notes, a close bonded relationship. And in the Old Testament is a title of honor for one who serves God. It is not the New Testament slave concept that we're talking about. It is my servant. This is the one close to me. This is, the one, this is how Moses is described as God's servant. Here is a believer, God says, one who made presumptuous accusations against God, yet someone who never lost their desire for God. What did Job seek from first chapter one through 42? He sought God. Ash writes this, while the friends want a system, Job wants God. I put here as a note, if we're to stop and pause for a second, let's be honest with ourselves what do we want? What do we really want? Think about it. I know we're sitting in church, right? So the, the church answer is God. That's, that's, we know that. That's what we all would say. Well, I definitely would want God. But our requests and demands may suggest otherwise. What we tell God he has to give us tells us we want a system and not God. How we approach God tells us a lot about what we really want. Do I want God? Or do I want what God's going to give me? Well, if I'm going to God for what do you give me, then I'm not going to God for God. I want a system, I want a formula. I want to write the formula, it doesn't matter what it is, but I want something that results in my blessing instead of seeking God. Job sought God. He had questions and he had struggles and he made, he made presumptuous accusations against God and he got reprimanded and addressed for that. But he never lost the desire for a relationship. You see, God takes so seriously his call and desire for relationship that the friends are instructed to make a sacrifice and hope that Job will pray for them. God says, I'm not listening to you. Now, can God hear what the friends say? Well, certainly he can. He's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. That means he hears everything. He knows every thought that you think, whether you're his child or not. He knows everything. What he was telling the friends was, I'm not listening to someone who's not my child. But he's affirming that Job is. They're called to bring a very costly offering. This is an offering that rich people could bring. Seven bulls, seven rams. They had to bring a lot there. They had to make the sacrifice. By the way, who's not sacrificing? Job's not. He's repented of his sin, but God has not called him to sacrifice yet another vindication. What do they tell him to do? You need to confess your hidden sin. God basically affirmed in this moment yet again, there is no hidden sin. Job is not the one who's wrong here you are. And they had to do it in front of Job. Take your sacrifices to Job. He didn't sacrifice for them. They just had a sacrifice in front of him. I don't know if it was maybe to make sure that they actually did it and were truly repentant. And really they're petitioning Job to pray for them. It doesn't say that uh, bluntly in the text, but the implication is you better hope Job prays for you. You go sacrifice and hope Job responds. God was not going to listen to their dead prayer but he would listen, a.k.a. act upon Job's. As James 5.15 makes abundantly clear, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So Eliphaz the Temanite, it says in verse 9, and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. Note that <laughs> they've been wrong a lot. They've got multiple chapters of being wrong. And yet when spoken to by God, they responded as well in repentance. They did as God said. The Lord also accepted Job, which tells you that Job was praying and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And this is what I find fascinating. Job's response, his prayer is a testimony of a forgiving heart. How do you know Job is aligned with his relationship to God? He's acting as God would act. How does God act? Well, God is a God of forgiveness. Does Job have every right to drag this out? What would you do? All right, let's see you sacrifice. Well, let's wait a minute. Let's think about this. Why don't you sit in the ash heap over there for a while and scrape yourself with some broken pots, and we'll see when I pray for you. Because we would immediately become manipulative and teach them a lesson, right? What we see from Job is prayer. He prays for them. He prays and God's response. The Lord also accepted Job. Job's, and I put in parentheses, Christian disposition, his attitude, resulted in blessings to others. Right away at the end, why is this a fitting close? You watch Job helping his friends, the people who have afflicted him for possibly months with bad advice. What do we learn? God desires relationship. He works through relationship, and that was something the friends had gotten completely wrong. Job struggled with his attitude. He became demanding at times and undermined God's character. I think we all can see that in ourselves. Yet he never stopped seeking a relationship with God. He never stopped seeking the mediator, the savior that we all need. As one writer comments, Yahweh shows that he permits far more latitude in genuine human searching than that tolerated by those who hold rigidly to a narrow theology. I would add those who hold to a prosperity theology, those who hold to a religious system. We must never miss the fact that vindication comes through relationship with the Savior. It's a relationship we all need. That system or theology of our own conscience is just a work-based nothingness. We need God. No matter, and think about this, sometimes we encounter people with a theology and you think, wow, they seem like they're saying some true things. And if you go back through what the friend said, there was truth that was woven into what they said. How does God analyze it at the end? My wrath is kindled against your folly, You deny my goodness and my redemptive activity by your system. And so oftentimes we find a little nugget of truth and we connect it to what we've built as the way to solve life. And so we say, look, there's a truth there. Look at that truth. And and God looks at the whole theology and it's based on works. And it doesn't work. See, the friends may have said true things, but they weren't committed to truth. Instead, they were committed to their own way, their own theology, their own take on things. Which should make us think a minute what are we committed to? Are we committed to our Savior, or are we committed to our way? And again, I know, oh, Kenny, it's not that drastic. I'm committed to my Savior and my way. Well, that's exactly what the friend said. And God said to them, that's folly. And he says to us, that's folly. Thankfully, as we've seen, the friends do submit to God's command. They humble themselves. Job does pray and God does heal. And then at the end, we get a glimpse of the full completion of Job's life, which is a picture of the blessings of a loving, gracious and merciful God. Many people look at this and say, well, at the end, God just proves a prosperity gospel. Job repents and bam, he gets everything like he wanted. And and it's a twist on what scripture is teaching us. What God is showing is that he is a loving, gracious and merciful God. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brother and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And notice he's no longer in the ash sheep but back home in town. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginnings. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand female donkeys. He also he had also seven sons and three daughters. Don't miss this, though. Ancient society emphasized the male. The male inherited, the male led. Everything was a male-driven society. Notice that you do not know the names of Job's sons. So we go into here, uh, just an interesting look how the Holy Spirit shows us things, enlightens there, and he called the name of the first, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Keren, Hapuk, And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren, unheard of in that society. After this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. What are some truths we pull from this? Job is blessed abundantly, yet it is not a payment or reward for repentance. It is not a dangling carrot, so he would do what God wanted. Notice that he repented and prayed for his friends without seeing his earthly circumstances turned around. Before family showed up, before he moved back into his house, before everyone gave him an investment of some funds, Before all that happened, Job had worshipped in the dust. In other words, he had cast out all the the material components and had repented and worshipped God. And then the friends are commanded to give sacrifice to God and Job is positioned to pray for them. And what does he do? He steps into the role that God would have him do because he's showing God's heart towards people all without something changing. Nowhere is the change in Job's status listed as the prescribed or guaranteed outcome of his spiritual attitude. It is always a blessing God gives to him. Instead, we need to recognize what a beautiful free gift from the hand of the creator. Yahweh freely and abundantly blessed him. And the blessings point not to Job, but to a life-giving, gracious Lord and Savior. The physical component vindicates Job in the world around him. When he receives all the blessing, it tells everyone out there communicating about who God is. God publicly and materially blessed Job and no one could doubt God's hand in the matter. And he ends up with double what he originally had. How? Well, God sends family and friends who all give something. And then the Lord blesses the work and ingenuity of Job so that what was invested in him gets turned into double of what he had. I just want you to see how brilliant he was. Nowhere do 14,000 sheep drop from heaven, boom, and then a load of other ones and a load of donkeys, and suddenly he's like, wow, that was great, God. It was awesome. It just, boom, dropped down. No, it said he's given an investment from people, and he turns that into... Double the amazing wealth that he had before, God still had him working, just in case you're praying for the load of money to drop from heaven. Job sees double the amount of material possessions and livestock. Job has 10 more kids, seven sons and three daughters, which he lost seven sons and three daughters. But it said God gave him double, so why not 20? Why don't we see 20 kids born? Well, the first 10 had left this earth, but they were not gone. I think this is a glimpse into his first 10 kids' eternal destiny. They were believers as well. God did double his children. The 10 were not gone forever. The 10... We're believers who sacrifice. And there's some people, I remember all the way back to chapter one, they, they look at Job sacrificing for his kids. And the implication they pull from that is that the kids are just this wild party animals doing this. And God is sacrificing, or Job is sacrificing for him just in case. But we know that you can't sacrifice for someone else. And so really what Job was doing was coming alongside as a father and helping them do what they knew they needed to do. They were participants in that. We get a glimpse into the eternal destiny of Job's first kids, gives us a little idea of the difference between animals and humans. Dead camels are dead and gone. They don't have a soul. Children have a soul and do exist for eternity. Job has 10 more children and then are blessed beyond belief. Interesting, as I mentioned, his daughters are named and not the sons. God is showing, again, all the way to creation that one is not above the other, one is not important than the other. In a society that would have emphasized the male, God says, hear the name of his daughters. They are receiving an equal inheritance in a a world that didn't give inheritance to daughters, and then it is their beauty that is world-renowned. And we see in that, God's creative hand. We see that God is a God of beauty and a God of grace and a God that creates. Top of that, Job lives to enjoy it all. Job gets 140 more years to live seeing his family to the fourth generation. What do we we see and apply here? It's not a formula that you attach to your suffering and say, I'm guaranteed double. Well, my house burned down and it was 1,000 square feet. So tomorrow I should have a 2,000 square foot house. That's not what it is. Well, my bank account got wiped out by someone stealing it. Well, it'll be double in a a couple days. This is not a a formula we attach to suffering and say, because of suffering, I'm going to double up. This is like investing. No, it is a picture of our loving Lord and Savior. It speaks of his kindness, his care, his love, his interest, his blessings, honest children. It's a reminder that we serve the Almighty, that he is a God of relationship, that he is invested in the lives of his saints. As you read about Job and the end of his life, you're supposed to see God. You're supposed to see his loving kindness. You're supposed to see how he blesses. We're kind of done with Job. We're wrapping it up. I know for a lot of us, I know for me, it's always a joy to to end. It's, It's a long book on purpose. You walk through those discussions and you wrestle through what's being said. It's repeated over and over. And I put here, Job has taught us quite a bit. We learn from Job the bigger picture and purpose of suffering. It moves us to see and think at a different level. It moves us to see things from God's perspective. We learn that God is worthy of worship, regardless of life circumstances. You worship God, not because you feel good. You worship God because he's God. We learn that God is bigger than we could ever imagine, and that this life and eternity and dealing with the sin and evil that permeates it is a job for only the almighty, all-knowing, all-present God. We cannot run it better. We don't have a suggestion that God should take. Why? Not just because God is the best we have. It's because God is perfect and holy and righteous and that this world is run perfectly by him. We learn that we can trust God even when the explanations are missing. I read an interesting quote from someone writing about Job and they close with this. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? Listen to that. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. I'd almost say there's oftentimes there's mystery. Will there also be faith? As we walk through the struggles and pains of this world, are we walking by faith, trusting our all-wise Lord and Savior, or are we questioning him, demanding explanations that fit our logic? When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and study your word as we close out Job, as we see how amazing you are, how loving you are, how gracious you are. Let's be reminded that we serve a God of relationship, that you call us to a personal relationship with you, that we're not called to a system, we're not called to our traditions, but instead we're called to you. And as we look at Job and, and as we've wandered all the way through his life as we've walked him wrestle, watched him wrestle with the pain and the questions, with the turmoil that Satan created in his mind as he questioned your goodness and your justice. But then at the end, we see you confront him and give him a picture of, of what the world really looks like, of who we really face. And we recognize that you are the all-powerful, all-knowing one, that you rule the world perfectly, that there's no suggestion we can make that will tweak how you run this world. And we can rest in that, knowing that you're in control, but also recognizing this, that we serve a God who loves us, who cares for us, who desires a relationship with us. Actually, he demands a relationship with us. So help us as we walk out, as we walk into life and face maybe suffering or or struggle or pain Whatever it may be that we seek you, that we recognize that you are the God who redeems. You're the good God with a redemptive purpose for, for humanity. And let's seek you because you are you. Let's seek you because you are the Savior and you are Lord. In your precious and holy name, amen.